a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Any opposed? No. I'm going to rule that motion fails. Right now on KSL Plus. Politics is about two things. It's about relationships and results. One week after the end of the 2023 legislative session, session, one lawmaker made Utah history. Carol Spackman Moss has served longer than any woman in the legislature. My colleague Deanie Wimmer talks to Representative Carol Spackman Moss. Have you lost a family member from COVID? I have. She's served for 23 years. A state's budget is a statement of its priorities and values. Making her the longest serving woman in the history of the Utah legislature. Well, that's correct. I'll be the longest serving woman in the history of the legislature. There are men who've served longer. I think Haven Barlow, it was in the 40s, the years that he served. But for a woman, that is the longest. And it just happened. I never set out to to set any kind of records. It just, um, all of a sudden, they said, oh, by the way. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So you didn't see this milestone barreling down it was a surprise no last spring the chief clerk said are you running for office again i said yes i am she says do you know that you will if you get elected after january 1st you'll be the longest serving the previous one was a democrat bev white from tooele and she served 22 years so yeah i had no idea what do you think of that well it surprises me but I had a career teaching, a wonderful career before, and um, this just seemed like a way to sort of extend the work I was doing as an advocate for public education for teachers and to continue serving my community, community, but in a different way. Do we not care about their health and safety? And so it's not full-time. Uh, I spend a lot of time at it, but I still had plenty of time. My husband and I traveled a lot. Um, I could do a lot of other things, and I didn't have to grade papers. <laughs> that was the only downside of teaching English. I love teaching literature and writing, but oh, those papers, stacks of papers, nights, weekends. So bills are better than papers? Right. You just have to read them. You don't have to write about them. I always 
always say, two hands on the wheel, both eyes on the road. Representative Carol Moss has made it her mission to save lives. For more than four years now, she has pushed for tougher restrictions on phone use behind the wheel. It is still legal in Utah to hold your phone and chat while driving. Moss has tried to change that several times, in fact, including last year and the year before. This is a crisis, and we really need to address it with reasonable laws. I don't know if you have memories coming here 23 years ago. What's something that, that sticks out in your mind? Well, I thought it would be easier to get things done, you know, that I would just propose something and it would happen. I didn't realize how much behind the scenes really work it takes. And the stakeholders that you have to reach out to, I just thought you put forth a good idea and you know, people would vote for it if it was a good idea. But, you know, I am in the minority, so you have to really work hard. Harder, I'd say, than if you're in the majority. But I learned uh, quickly that you have to reach out and get advocates and, and um, work it. That's the whole thing. And I've, I've learned how to do that much better. I start earlier. Often now we do working groups on a particular topic. You get a group together. And now with the, uh, with the wonders of Zoom, you don't have to come up to the Capitol all the time. You can just get a group together and do a Zoom meeting and talk about things like I did with my suicide prevention bill. I met with the county sheriffs twice via Zoom. They're all over the state. We talked about their priorities, what would be most helpful in helping prevent suicides because we do have a very high rate in, in national ranking per capita of suicides. So, uh, so I, I know a lot more what goes into making good legislation. Seeing all those present to voted, voting is closed. H.R. 901 passes the House with 56 yes votes and zero no The resolution votes. to encourage the Utah Board of Education to prohibit teaching critical race theory passed the House and ultimately the Senate. But the big focus was House Democrats who walked out, taking a strong stand that this resolution is inappropriate. My biggest concern with this resolution is about the flawed process. Carol Spackman Moss was among the Democrats to walk out. See, there's a process and we should follow that. And it's worked well for decades and not let extreme politics invade our public schools. What's changed over the 23 sessions? Um, what's changed is that um, we don't have a lot more women. I came in with a lot of women, and um, women of great distinction like Pat Jones and uh, Karen Morgan, Karen Hale, Marie Polson, uh, Becky Edwards, and it was just thrilling to have these women. And we were very collaborative. We worked across the aisle. And I've seen over time, especially this session, that it's much more partisan, like hyper-partisan. We need to look at two sides to fairness. And in this case, what has not happened and what this bill will do will marginalize kids who are already feel marginalized. This is an incredibly contentious and divisive issue. I understand that. I think, though, at this point, we are doing our best to try and thread a needle to be able to preserve women's sports and find a path forward. It's political theater because it won't go into effect. So we won't get any of the benefits from passing this bill, but we will get absolutely all of the harms. We, I came in with 22 Democrats, and now we have 14. And so clearly it's harder. It's harder to be in the minority. You have to work harder. So those inroads haven't really 
No, and, and our caucus, as Democrats, we've always had more women than all of the majority caucus. So I feel like, I don't know why exactly, but uh, women tend that run for office tend to be more of them Democrats. We've interviewed you for a lot of stories and, and done uh, stories on many of your efforts. Um, we've talked to you about many of your efforts. What are you most proud? What accomplishment are you most proud of? Um, I think the work I've done in the, in the opioid overdose epidemic starting in 2014, I passed the first naloxone rescue bill. We're fed up with the status quo. And that was at a time when a, you could only prescribe it to a patient. Well, a patient can't help themselves, and so that just made it so a doctor could prescribe it to uh, another person. But then not enough doctors knew that, so the next step was all, make it so all the police officers could carry it without liability, and then it was all the uh, health departments could hand it out to a family member or a friend. And now we've gotten to the point where you can get it without a prescription. And you can even get an naloxone kit at your public library. And then I did two Good Samaritan laws, and that means that when someone, instead of letting their friend die or abandon them when they're overdosing, and that happened to several of my former students whose parents came and told me, then if you call for help, then you don't have to, you, you won't be charged with use or possession instead of abandoning your friend or dumping him out in a sidewalk in front of a hospital. So, I, and then I joined forces, Jennifer Plum, who's now a senator, Dr. Plum, and her brother started Utah Naloxone because that happened to their brother. And now I feel like that saved thousands of lives, the ability they've distributed all over the state now. It's not clear at all what the outcome's going to be. As we often say in legislating, it's the unintended consequences that we're concerned about. How's your first career in education influenced your time as a law oh, lawmaker? That's a good question. I, uh, I've been asked that a lot, and I often say, uh, well, uh, uh, what prepared you to be in, in politics? And I said, spending 33 years in classrooms with teenagers, while it gets a laugh, it's really true because the skills I learned, it's about communication. Politics is about two things. It's about relationships and results. And the ability to communicate with people of all different types of personalities and to get along with stakeholders like parents and administrators. I mean, I've had so much opportunity to explain things and educate and work with different people with different styles of communication, and I think that's been a huge um, part of whatever success that I've had. But it's not far wrong to say that if you can get along with teenagers, you can get along <laughs> with anyone? Correct, because some people say, mm, some of those legislators, maybe. <laughs> I hear it. <laughs> Over all those years of service, collectively, what are you most proud of? Um, I have been a, a, a strong advocate for education and for teachers, and I've passed legislation in, that has benefited education. I've certainly been 
part of getting funding for education because I've served on the Appropriations Committee. If Utah truly values our children, then dramatically increasing funding for public education is the way to show it. I also passed the first bullying and hazing bill way back in the early 2000s. And now when kids are bullied, there is a process of filling out a report, uh, not being able to retaliate against people. And, um, and, and I'm, I'm really proud of that because, you know, we, have, we continue to see a lot of bullying. But I, I'd say that the, because teachers all over the state, look, count on me. <laughs> to be a voice for them. And this session especially, there have been a lot of bills that have been really either attacking teachers or public schools or banning books. And I've, I've been an outspoken um, opponent of those bills. And I, so I'm proud of that because they appreciate it. They write, teachers write to me and say thank you. Along those lines, on the one hand you hear this has been the session of education because of the overall money. But then you mentioned those, those fights about removing the earmark, and the other uh, voucher bill tied to teacher raises. Do, do, the, do those wear on you? They really do, and they wear on teachers. They're happy for the salary increase, but then you say, but we're going to give $42 million to encourage people to take their kids out of public education. And so you can't say on the one hand, we love teachers, but we're going to encourage people to leave public education. And then the bills about transparency, as if teachers, what they do is secret. Just show up if you want to know what you're teaching or how your kid's doing or what the curriculum materials are. Go to parent-teacher conferences, email. Teachers already reveal that. And so it seems very punitive. And many of these bills, I have to tell you, they come verbatim from other states. And they make assumptions that teachers are teaching things like see critical race theory and other things, which they're not. And so that, that distrust has really worn on teachers. And I know teachers who are leaving the profession as a result. They just said. And it started with the pandemic and the mask wearing and closing schools and, you know, and certain segments of the population were angry about that. When school board members have to be escorted to their car, this happened in Granite District by the police and other board members in other counties have had death threats, that's a problem. And that really does weigh on people uh, in public education. And people like those who run for school boards. So it's been really troubling to me. And so this would provide data that we could really compile and see what are the biggest issues and how can we address them. You really can't make good policy if you don't have good data. Of all the bills that you've introduced and worked on, and I know you've worked on many across the aisle with people, what's been the one you wish you could have gotten through that didn't? Well, it's one that I ran again this term and it, it didn't get through, or this session. Um, it had an innocuous title like health education amendments, but it was really about in the health uh, classes in junior high and high school that be, kids be taught about ways to prevent sexual violence and assault because it is a huge problem in Utah. Our statistics show that one in three girls has, is a victim of some kind of sexual violence by the time they're 18. And the rate of rape is very high, and boys too. And to teach kids about grooming and coercion and, and to teach them that it, also the illegality of sending sexually explicit images over 
with their phones. It's called sexting. It's happening in every high school, and that's it's a federal offense. And so that, but it was shut down by a group of parents, primarily called Utah Parents United, and they they say it should be taught in the home. But you have to opt in. You don't have to have your kid. But it's not, or it wouldn't. We wouldn't have the the rates we do. So that's very disappointing to me. It would protect kids. Knowledge is power, and educating them is to give them that kind of power, requiring consent, as well as teaching them refusal skills. And those are, those are important things. I mean, we, as I say, this, the data is there. They need that kind of education. And the majority of kids are in public schools, so that's where you reach most kids. But sadly, parents don't always teach these things. I, I would say I wasn't good at it. You know, we, we have to learn the language, and kids need to learn the words and the language to use. We seem to have crossover appeal because we couldn't be reelected without Republican uh, support. What would you say to women who are thinking about going into office or young women who want to be like you? Well, I'd say you should really consider running for office. And uh, my good friend Pat Jones, formerly a senator and a rep, uh, runs the Women's Leadership Institute. Many women have gone through that to teach them about the kind of leadership skills. Women are very good uh, in, in legislation. Uh, they're more collaborative, I think, than men. Men want to win at all costs. <laughs> Women want to bring people together. And they do slightly different kinds of legislation, more on families and, and more in the social services area, I would say. But I've done all kinds of things. I've done HOA, homeowner association bills. I've done a variety of things. And, and I've been working with uh, county jails and, and, and I've worked on insanity defense. Things come to you. That's what makes it fascinating. Things happen or constituents come to you and with ideas. But I think women are very good because they have the kind of empathy that comes from raising families and, and I, like I say, a more collaborative um, uh, demeanor, I'd say, in working where men are kind of in it to win it more, <laughs> more competitive. Not that I'm not competitive. I think women are too, but in a different way. Well, I think that um, women uh, have a tendency to do uh, work on issues that relate to everybody. It takes money. You have to be, and people say, oh, I just don't like to ask people for money. Well, first thing someone said to me when I said that, when I was first running, he said, you're not, not asking people to give you money. You're asking people to donate money to your campaign because of the values and issues that you are supporting. So that changed the whole dynamics. I'm really very good at that now. <laughs> That's fundraising. Awesome. It comes down to this. Put your phone down two hands on the wheel, it would be only a slight inconvenience in my view and it could make all the difference. Well, I, I'm really proud of the fact that beyond just doing legislation during the session, that I do a lot of constituent services work and I don't have a staff in the office session, 
but I, my neighbor calls me a connector because I know a lot of people. So when someone calls and says, like refugees, for example, that couldn't get driver's license, I can call the head of the DMV on his cell phone. I can get to the head of an agency because I have a title and I don't use it to impress anybody. It's that I can get through to someone where the public generally has to go through up the bureaucratic ladder and often get stuck down there. So I can make those connections for people. And I think I feel better about that, people that I knock on their doors year after year, and they say, oh, we'll never forget when you helped us do such and such. And that means more to me, really, than passing a lot of laws. Well, and you're known for working out in your, in your district with your people. They know you, you meet with them. Right. I go to schools, I go to fairs, I go to parades, and, and, you know, I show up at things, and I go to community council meetings, and I think that's been the biggest joy, because I like people, and I like um, to be part of things that might change things for the better, and it's just given me an opportunity in a different way. That does it for us this week on KSL+. Plus. I'm Matt Rascone. I'll see you again next week. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.